But back to 1 Corinthians 10. So I'm going to be reading the first 13 verses this morning. And um, just a warning, we may be turning to some other passages, so I'll have to try to be brief here. Uh, So 1 Corinthians 10, Paul writes, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized in the Moses, in the cloud, and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples, to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples. And they were written for our admonition upon whom the end of the ages has come, have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stand take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So... Of course, after reading that passage, you might be thinking, what is Paul talking about here? And what does this have to do with what came before it? Because as I've been arguing, and as, as I think if you study the structure of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 8 through chapter 10 is one unit. It's one point that Paul is addressing as he addresses this, this issue concerning things offered to idols. And how he talks about, you know, do not wound the conscience of a weaker brother. Uh, if, if food makes my weaker brother stumble, I will never eat meat. Uh, knowledge puffs up, love builds up. And then he goes through chapter 9 as in, uh, showing his own life, how he practiced what he preached. And then you come to 10, and then all of a sudden you, it seems, sounds like you're getting a little history lesson about the people of Israel. It's like how, what they did. And it's like, how does this fit? How does this... Um, connect with, with what Paul had just previously said. Well, as I was kind of wrestling through this as well, if you look at what we studied last week, particularly verse 27, you see, of course, how Paul is telling them, after giving his example of how he lives, he tells them, you know, he, he goes into these sports metaphors, right? Do not run unless you're going to run to win the prize. You need to exercise discipline. You need to literally beat your body black and blue and bring it under control so that you will not be disqualified. Because if you compete, you need to know that you're competing for the prize. And that's what Paul says. Therefore, in verse 26, I run thus, not with uncertainty. I run with a goal in mind. Thus I fight, not as one who is shadow boxing, but I, I one is, 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 is one who trains to win the fight. I discipline my body, I bring it in subjection, lest when I preach to others, I myself should become disqualified. 
And that's, what I, that's where the connection is here, because he sh- then goes on to show how in the history of the Jewish people, I mean, everything you saw here that we read is taken from the Exodus generation. So this, these are the, the children of Israel after they've been freed from Exodus and are wandering through the wilderness. And Paul's point with them is they did not run the race well. They did not exercise discipline. They did not exercise self-control. They gave in to their lust. And this is what happens. They became, many of them, became disqualified. So here, again, just a quick tour of where we've been and so we can see where we're going. Again, uh, beginning in chapter 7, Paul has started the second half here of 1 Corinthians. The first half dealt with the report from Chloe's household that had some issues that were raised about the church, going on, things going on in the church, divisions, sexual immorality, people uh, uh, suing others in uh, secular courts. And then the second half, of course, deals with questions coming from the church itself. Uh, chapter 7 was the first question dealing with issues surrounding marriage, singleness, and divorce. And then chapter 8 here, he talks about things offered to idols. And then in chapter 9, Paul shows how he exemplified this principle, the principle of making sure that if anything causes my brother to stumble, then I will gladly sacrifice my liberty rather than cause my brother to stumble. In other words, being all things to all men in order to win some. Now again, as we come now to chapter 10, the first thing to note is how what Paul says here in these verses that we just read flows out of what we saw last time. Again, I, as I mentioned, this idea of running the race well. Paul desires to discipline his body and keep it under control so that he should not be qualified. So then chapter 10 focuses on the Jewish people in the wilderness and how they were unqualified. And note, yeah, we'll, we'll get to it in a moment, but note in verses 6 and 11, Paul twice says these things became our examples. Verse 6, right? Then verse 11. Now all these things happened to them as examples. Many among the people of Israel of old failed to discipline their bodies, failed to exercise self-control, and as a result, they disqualified themselves from entering the promised land. Now when I say most, I mean, it's like all but two, right? The generation that came out of Egypt all but two were allowed to enter into the promised land. Do you remember who those two were? Joshua and Caleb. All the other generation, including Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, all perished in the wilderness. Now, of course, they had children, so their children were able to go in. But the original generation that came out, when Paul says most, he means like 99.99% of them uh, perished became disqualified. So Paul here is going to highlight four times when Israel failed the test and then use that as a warning to the Corinthians to take heed lest they also should fail the test. Now Paul is concluding his argument about things offered to idols and Lord willing next week you'll see in verses 14 through 22 He's going to bring the argument back around to idols. How, you know, in chapter 8, he talks about how an idol is nothing. In the next passage we're going to look at next week, 
uh, Lord, again, Lord willing, he's going to show how even though an idol is nothing, if you participate in these uh, ceremonies in which you are eating in a, in a, in a uh, pagan temple, meat that had been offered to idols, you're in a sense participating in a demonic ritual. So he's going to argue you shouldn't do that. You know, you should not do that. So he's going to bring it back around, but he's using this passage here as an example on how to... It, really, it's a passage that talks about being overconfident, and the Corinthians were overconfident. Right? Again, it's this idea of you think that you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you've prayed the prayer, you've walked the aisle, you've made the profession of faith, you've got the fire insurance, and then you can somehow behave any old way that you want and nothing's going to happen to you. They were a little overconfident. Paul, that's why in verse 12, says, Take heed, lest you fall, as they did. Right? The Israelites thought that they were golden because they were God's chosen people. And look what happened to them. That entire generation, save two people, were wiped out because they did not uh, obey God. They did not take heed. They did not discipline or exercise self-control. So here he's going to warn the Corinthians not to put Christ to the test. So first, looking at verses 1 through 5, Paul here gives us the example. Again, coming off the heels of what he said in verse 27 of chapter 9, I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest I myself should be disqualified. Paul here begins to wrap up this whole argument in verses 1 through 4 again. So just please look at verses 1 through 4. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses into the cl- in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Now there's several things we could say about these verses here, and the primary thing I want to take note of is the Apostle's main point in writing this. And that main point is to be aware of something. He's, he's telling the Corinthians, I want you to be aware of something. And that thing Paul wants them to be aware of is the connection between the believers in Corinth and the wilderness generation in Exodus. And that connection is made explicit when Paul says to them in verse 1, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Now, you might be thinking, I thought the Corinthian church was largely a Gentile church. How can Paul say all our fathers? Is he only talking to the Jewish members of the church, which would be very few Theoretically, you know, I mean, most probably, you know, considering Corinth was a major uh, Gentile city. No, I don't think that's what he's saying. He's making connection that if you are a member of the church, if you are a member of the community of faith, you have a connection with those of the community of faith in the Old Testament. Their, our, their fathers were our fathers. Their history is our history. We are connected, not by blood. Most of us are not Jewish, so not by blood. We can't draw a lineage to them, but we are connected by faith. Paul will say in Galatians 3, verse 7, that it is of those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. 
If you are a member of the church by faith, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then you are, in a sense, a son of Abraham, who was also one who was a, a, a member of a community by faith. There is a continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament, between Israel and the church. There are differences, but there is a huge uh, continuity between the two. And because of this connection, Paul uh, wants the Corinthians to see the Exodus generation as an example of people who, for the large part, did not uh, exercise the self-control or the discipline necessary to uh, not be disqualified. So he's making a connection. This is your history, church. What you see in the Old Testament is our history. It is the history of the people of faith. In fact, as we'll see in verses 6-11, through the Israelites did not run the race to win, even though many of them were recipients of many blessings. And the blessings here Paul outlines in the first four verses. They were under the cloud and passed through the sea. They were under the protection of the Shekinah glory cloud of God's presence. The cloud that took form of a a pillar of smoke and a pillar of fire at night to light the way. They were under the protection of God. They passed through the sea, all of them. When, When God, through Moses, parted the Red Sea, the entire two million man army or person army went through the Red Sea. So they were all under the cloud. They all passed through the sea. So all of them were blessed in that sense. They were blessed by being saved and delivered by God. They were all, as we see here in verse 3, or verse 2, I should say, baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now what's going on there? Well, it means, in a sense, that the Israelites were identified with Moses. They were connected. They were united to Moses. As baptism serves as a symbol of our union with Christ, Right, Romans 6 talks about how we were buried with Him in baptism and how we were raised to newness of life. This idea of being baptized into Moses to show a sort of a union, if you will, between the Israelites and Moses. So they were, because they were under the tutelage or under the, the, the uh, purview of Moses, it was be, they were sort of baptized into Moses. They were figuratively, if you will, Saved by Moses, not, not an eternal salvation, but a temporal deliverance. Because of their union with Moses, they were under the cloud and they were able to pass through the sea. They also partook of the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. Now again, this is not to say that the food itself was immaterial by saying spiritual. The idea is that the manna that was provided by God and the water that God provided through the rock were of a spiritual nature. They were produced by the Spirit. They were spiritually produced, if you will. Of course, it's a reference to the manna that God provided every morning and the water that God provided through the rock. There's twice, you You have at least two instances recorded in Scripture in which Moses draws water from a rock. And in the first case, he's told to strike the rock and water comes out. In the second case, in Numbers... uh, I want to say 21, I think it is. In Numbers, he's told to speak to the rock. 
Moses strikes the rock, and that's why he's disqualified from going into the promised land. But the idea is that the, the rock, water was produced from the rock. In fact, there's an old Jewish uh, fable that says that this rock sort of followed them <laughs> through the wilderness, the same rock that produced water each time. Now, Paul kind of draws on that. He says, well, that rock was Christ. It's not that the rock was actually moving. It's just that wherever they were, wherever they needed water, God was there in Christ to provide the water for them. God provided for them. And there's a parallel here, of course, between talking about spirit. You know, I mean, Paul here is using, he uses the phrase baptism into Moses. He uses spiritual food, spiritual drink. I mean, he's making a connection in, in a way, if you will, between our own sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, which he makes more explicit in the next passage in verses 14 through 22. Now again, that phrase, that, uh, the rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. We know, of course, in the Old Testament, often refers to God as the rock. Right? We also know that Jesus said that he was the stone that the builders rejected. And we also know that Jesus said that he was the bread of life, that whoever came to him shall never hunger, and whoever believes in him shall never thirst. So again, it's not that literally Christ was there in the form of a rock following them through the wilderness. It's just that he provides them uh, food and he provided them drink. But then there's a but, and this is a bad but. Verse 5, but... With most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. So despite all these blessings, despite being under the cloud, passing through the sea, being baptized into Moses, receiving spiritual food and spiritual drink, they did not follow through. They, God was not well pleased with them. And we're going to see in verses 6 through 11 why God was not well pleased with them. But he was not well pleased with them, and their bodies were scattered. Some translations, if you have ESV, it say uh, overthrew or overthrown in the wilderness. Yeah. The word, it, it's fine, it's a fine translation, but the word literally means like to scatter. I mean, if you think about all the places where the Israelites went and, the, and died, their bodies, in a sense, were literally scattered throughout the wilderness. God was not well pleased with them. As we said earlier, most of that generation, nearly all, except two, never made it to the promised land. They were disqualified before they could make it to the promised land. I want you to turn to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 3. All right, Hebrews chapter 3, starting in verse 16. The writer here says, For who, having heard, rebelled? He's talking about the wilderness generation. They, they heard and they rebelled. Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? So they heard the good news, right? Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Well, who heard and rebelled? Well, it was that generation that came out of Egypt with Moses. Now, with whom was he angry 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? They were scattered. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey. So we see that they could not enter because of unbelief. So that, that generation in the wilderness did not enter the promised land because of unbelief, because of how they angered God for 40 years. 
going on. Therefore, chapter 4, verse 1, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. So here the, the author of Hebrews is doing the exact same thing Paul's doing in Corinthians. He's using the Old Testament example of the Israelites and saying, okay, now how about you? Don't you do the same things? For indeed the gospel is preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we uh, who have believed do enter the rest, as he has said, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has spoken in a certain place. <laughs> I like that. I'm not sure what the reference is, but I'm going to say I read it somewhere in the Bible. He spoke in a certain place uh, the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was pre uh, first preached did not enter because of disobedience. Again, he designates a certain day, saying in David, Today, after such a long time as it has been said, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There therefore remains a day of rest for the people of God. For, who, uh, for he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. And I could go on, but I'll stop there. You can go back to 1 Corinthians. The idea is they disobeyed and they did not enter the promised land, the land of rest. That's why there is, the, Hebrew, you know, the author of Hebrews says, that's why there is still yet another day, another day of rest that we must enter into. But here, the wilderness generation, Paul uses an example to show how the Corinthians must also not do what they did. So that's the example going on now to the warning in verses 6 through 11. So Paul makes clear from this uh, little history lesson that he gave uh, why he gave it in verse 6. He says, look, now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Well, what were some of the evil things that they lusted after? I mean, how many times have you read in the Old Testament, in the, in, the, in the Exodus narrative, the times that the people complained about all the locks and the meat and the leeks and the onions and the pizza and the hot dogs and all the other things from the land of Egypt that they didn't have now? You know, they were constantly looking back to Egypt from where God had delivered them. God had delivered them. God had done a mighty work of salvation in delivering His people. And when things got hard, they looked back to where their slavery was. So they continued to lust after evil. They did not exercise discipline and self-control and were thereby disqualified. And now their lives serve as an example for the Corinthians and for us. In fact, that word example comes from the Greek word tupos, which we get the word type from. Israel in the wilderness is a type it's a type that corresponds to the church now in the church age. And it's not to say that what happened to Israel didn't happen. It happened. But there's a greater lesson to be drawn from it. As their disqualification led to them not going into an earthly promised land, our disqualification will keep us from going into a heavenly promised land. So just as they desired evil and died in the wilderness, do not desire evil and be disqualified in the race. Run the race to win. Well, how do they desire evil? Well, we're going to look at that here. In order to do that, 
Uh, they wanted, you know, as we mentioned, they wanted to go back to Egypt, uh, the place from which God saved them. They wanted to undo what God had done. It's an evil thing, right? It's an evil thing to despise the salvation and deliverance of the Lord. To complain about how the Lord has delivered us. Right? I don't like the way you saved me, Lord. I don't like what you're doing in my life, God. I don't want to be in that spot. <laughs> I don't want to be in that spot. God in Christ has saved us from a life of sin and misery. But because we face a little trouble in this world, we begin to long for the good old days, the days before we came to Christ, how easy those days were, how, how much fun we had back in those days. That's desiring evil. That is desiring evil as the Israelites did. So when Paul says these things took place as examples, he's saying that these are negative examples, right? These are things not to do. Don't do these things. Now I know if you tell a child, don't do this, what do they do? They do it, okay? All right, but the idea here is don't do these things. He gives us four warnings from four different instances in the lives of the Israelites in the wilderness in verses 7 through 10. So 1 Corinthians 7, Do not become idolaters as were some of them, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. Now that's taken right out of Exodus 32. And in Exodus 32... Moses is up on the mountain receiving the law of God, and the people are back down in the valley, and they're waiting, waiting, waiting. They've been waiting 40 days, 40 nights, and they begin to think, where's Moses? Where's Moses? And they say, well, okay, Moses is not around. We need another God. So they go to Aaron. Aaron, make us another God. So Aaron says, okay, take off all your gold earrings and bracelets and so on and so forth. Throw them into the fire, and then we'll make God. So they, they craft the golden calf, and then they say, Okay, Israel, this is your God who led you out of Egypt. Let's worship them. And so they start worshiping him. And then it says they rose up to play and to eat and drink. And, and it wasn't like they were playing, you know, cards, okay? They, were, they weren't playing pitch, okay? They were engaging in debauchery. They were engaging in orgies, all kinds of debauchery. So Moses comes down and is angered, and, and that's what happens. And then most of them are slain, right? The Levites come up. They gird their swords, and they kill, I think it's like 3,000 of them in the, in, the, in, the, in the battlefield there that day. Now, again, it's not by accident that Paul begins with an example of idolatry, because, again, this whole discussion in chapters 8 through 10 of 1 Corinthians is about things offered to idols, and about people who are, have a weak conscience because they're coming out of a life of idolatry. And that phrase, they sat down to eat and drink, as we said, suggests sexual immorality. Again, something that is, Paul has been hammering home to the Corinthians here as they themselves practice idolatry. In fact, if you remember, I think it was back when we looked at uh, chapter 6, Verses 12 through 20, where they were, having, uh, they, were, they were having sexual acts with harlots. Now, the harlot in, in, in Corinth wasn't just some, you know, some prostitute you picked up on a street corner. The, these harlots were associated with pagan idolatry. So in a sense, the Corinthians were engaging in pagan idolatrous acts and then going into the sexual acts as well. 
So all of these things, this idea of sexual immorality and idolatry are all kind of coming together here in the letter to Corinth. So he says, do not become idolaters as they were. The second warning, verse 8, is more explicit to sexual immorality, where he says, nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Now that is a reference to, uh, in Numbers 25, in Numbers 25, this is the incident of Baal Peor, uh, in which uh, Balaam, the false prophet who was hired by Balak, king of Moab, to curse the Israelites, and instead of cursing, he blessed them four times or three times, and then Balak gets upset. Well, later on, Balaam has the idea, well, why don't we tempt them with harlots from, your, from, from Moab? So they, 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 they bring in a whole bunch of harlots, and the and people of Israel commit idolatry and sexual immorality with these Moabitess prostitutes. And then, of course, you know, I think it was Phineas, the son of, I think it might be Aaron's grandson, if I'm not mistaken. Phineas was the son of Eliezer. And, and he, uh, who was zealous for the Lord, he went out and grabbed, you know, and started slaying the people committing sexual immorality because they were doing it right in the doorway of the tabernacle. So they committed a bunch of sexual immorality, and in one day, 23,000 of them fell. And again, we also know that the Corinthians had issues with sexual immorality in the church. So this one would hit close to home for them as well. The third way they should, the third example for them is not putting Christ to the test, verse 9. Nor let us tempt or put Christ to the test. Uh, Let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. This takes us back again to the book of Numbers, Numbers 21, uh, in which the people, again, were complaining. They complain. And these guys, I'm telling you, they had their PhDs in complaining. These guys could complain with the best of them. And they were like, why did you bring us out here to die, Moses? Why, 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 Moses? This is horrible. We're in the wilderness. We've been wandering. Why did you bring us out here? And and, and they complained not only to Moses and Aaron, but they complained about God themselves, and they were afflicted with bronze serpents. The Israelites spoke against God and against Moses, and they were afflicted with serpents. Now, John uses this example in a positive way to show how Jesus was the bronze serpent lifted up on the pole. If anyone looked at the bronze serpent, they were saved. If anyone comes to Christ in faith who was also lifted up, would be saved. But here, Paul is using it as a negative example about how they were afflicted because of their complaining, because of their putting God to the test, or tempting, and, and notice how he says here, tempting Christ. Tempting Christ. So, you know, just bringing the fact here that Christ is being tempted, you know, they're, they're testing Christ, they're putting him to the test here as well. And then the fourth warning comes in verse 10. Nor complain, as some of them complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Most likely, this refers to the incident at the edge of the promised land. So, they had made it to the promised land early, right, ahead of schedule. And when they got there, what did they do? Well, they sent the 12 spies in to spy out the land. 
Right? And this is why Joshua and Caleb were allowed to enter, because they brought the good report. The other ten spies came back and brought the bad report. And then the people believed the ten spies, because ten's higher than two, I guess. You know, majority rules. You know, that's why you don't want a straight you know, democratic society. But the majority rule... And they did not enter the promised land. And again, they complained. Why are you bring us out here, Moses? Were there not enough graves in Egypt to bury us? And they complained. And then, he's, and then he says, okay, fine. You are going to wander in the wilderness now for 40 years. The number of days that the spies were in the land, that's how many years you're going to wander in the wilderness. And then the people are like, oh, we're sorry. We're going to try to take the land now. And then Moses warns them, don't go now because the Lord is not with you. They go anyway, and they get routed. So now they complained. They complained. In each of these situations, the Israelites desired evil, they questioned God, and they complained about God's provision. As a result, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. And again, Paul states in verse 11, the typological nature of these stories Again, all these things happened to them as examples. And they were written for our admonition, upon whom the end of the ages has come. So what happened to them really happened. We're not saying it didn't happen, but it was typological in nature. They died and were not allowed entrance into the promised land. However, for those of us on whom the end of the ages has come, as Paul says here, for on whom the end of the ages have come. It is for our instruction. It is for our admonition. For if their disobedience led to physical death in the wilderness, how much more so then, now that we're at the end of the ages, will our disobedience separate us from our eternal Sabbath rest if we disobey and if we're disqualified? So now that brings us to the third and final point here, the application in verses 12 through 13. So what's the payoff for the Corinthians? Well, look at verse 12. Therefore, so he's concluding here, right? Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he falls. Again, if you think that just because you've made a profession of faith in Christ and you have and you think that because of that, you're covered and you can do whatever you want, take heed lest you fall. The Christian life is not just a profession of faith. James is very clear about that. If you say you have faith but have no works, then guess what? Your faith is dead. Your faith is dead and does you no good. You have to have works that come and flow out of a vibrant, living faith in which you are connected to the true vine, Jesus Christ. So take heed. That word take heed is actually the word in Greek to see. So it's like, watch out. <laughs> Look out. <laughs> watch where you step. If you think that you are confident in your faith, but you're still kind of engaging in these activities, watch out. Because if you think you're standing, you're going to fall. If you think you're standing on solid ground, you might be on sinking sand. Just because you're a member of the church, just because you've been baptized, just because you profess faith in Jesus Christ is not a guarantee. Take heed. It's a warning against overconfidence. And again, this, I, the, the, one of the main themes in this part of the letter is the idea of Christian liberty. And they took Christian liberty to mean I am free to do whatever I want. 
And Paul's like, no, it is not a license to sin. Liberty is not liberty to sin. You're not free from sin. You're not free in Christ to be free to sin. You've been set free from sin. Right? The Israelites were set free from Egypt. Their liberty does not mean they get to go back to Egypt. Grace does not mean you can skate right up to the edge of sin and get away with it. It's similar to the warning Paul gave the Gentile readers in Romans 11. Romans 11, verses 17 through 21. In that passage, he's talking about how is the, you know, the Jews have shown themselves to be unfaithful, and their, their unbelief has led to riches for the Gentiles because the gospel goes out to the Gentiles now. So he tells the Gentiles, you are wild olive branches. Natural branches have been cut off from the, from the vine, and you have been grafted in. But then in verse 17 he says, Now if some branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root. The root supports you. And then you will say, well, hey, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. I must be special, right? Well, because of unbelief, they were broken off. And you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Now, I don't know, you know how accurate it is to be able to graft a wild olive shoot into a natural branch, but the point is, God is saying, or what Paul is saying here is like, look, Natural branches, indeed, were broken off for your benefit, but it's, God can just as easily break you off and grant, graft the natural branches back in. Don't be haughty. Take heed, lest you fall, right? This is a dire warning. How can any Christian stand? Well, the grace of God comes forth in verse 13, the last verse here. It's like, look, no temptation has overtaken you except as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Now this verse, of course, it's grace, but it's a double-edged sword. Right? Every temptation that comes in your life, there is an exit. Right? If you enter into a room of temptation, there will be a door with an exit sign above it that says, this is the way out. That's the good news. The bad news is that you really have no excuse for falling into temptation, right? Because God says no temptation has, has come upon you or he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able to bear, right? So that's the double-edged sword to this verse. If you, if you give in to sin, you can't say, well, God tempted me. No, you have to, it's your fault. You, you fall into it. God has set these tests up along your path, and if you fall into the temptation, he's giving you a way out, but if you fall into that temptation, you are the one to blame for that. It's great comfort to know that God is in control over my temptations and that he will never give me more than I can handle. Right? When we talked about James 1, uh, we talked about how God is sovereign over 
When the temptations or the trials happen, he's sovereign over how long the trials afflict you. He's sovereign over the severity of the trials. He's sovereign over all of these things. That's why you can count it as joy when you face trials because you know that these trials are sovereignly put in your life by God for your benefit, for your endurance, for your perfection. But on the other hand, as James also will say, when you are tempted, don't say, God has tempted me, right? <laughs> you know, when you're tempted, you cannot use this as an excuse because if I sin, it is because I gave in to the temptation. And you might say, well, pastor, you didn't know what I'm going through. I mean, my temptations are really, really hard. I mean, these, these are super temptations. Well, that's not what verse 13 says. Is no temptation is overtaken you except such as is common to man. Now, I'm not, I'm not trying to belittle the temptations you're going through, but the temptations you're going through are the same temptations that people have been going through forever. Forever, since there's been a fall. Every time a temptation comes our way, will, uh, comes our way, there will be a door with an exit sign over it, but Paul's point is that we should exercise discipline and self-control so that we will not be disqualified in the race. So we can run the race and win the prize. And we need to be watchful in the areas of Christian liberty, not only for the sake of our weaker brothers, but also for our own sakes. We have to be careful in the areas of Christian liberty. And if we're not careful, these areas of liberty might enslave us and become idols in our lives. And I think that's what's happening here in Corinth. The, the Corinthians think that they have this liberty, and really the liberty is enslaving them. They're still enslaved to some of these practices that they're going through. And we'll see that uh, next time as well when we go through this, uh, uh, verses 14 through 22. But I'm going to stop here because we are running up on time.